Gresham College presents The Nature of Financial Risk by Avinash Persaud, Mercer's School Memorial Professor of Commerce. Tonight's lecture is on the nature of financial risk. There's been much talk about the transfer of financial risk, the transfer of credit risk, and they ask the question whether risk as a whole can be ever reduced or merely transferred, and whether in our attempt to transfer these risks, are we perhaps ending up by concentrating them? Financial stability is rightly an important stated objective of our financial oversight and regulation here in the UK and to uh, an extent internationally as well. But it's important not to lose sight of the fact that financial stability is a means to an end. It's not the end in itself. We want financial stability in order to facilitate the kind of sensible risk-taking that delivers economic growth and development. But the way we try and achieve financial stability and how we try and manage risks can affect how we take risks, what risks we take, where these risks are taken, and who ends up having them. This will impact the end objective of economic growth. For example, we tax banks for taking risks through their capital adequacy requirements as part of our attempt to limit the risks in the banking system. We do not additionally and equally tax investors in the securities markets for taking those same risks. Now, bankers are many things, but they're not silly. Unsurprisingly, they have sold their risks to the securities markets. And this is an accidental consequence of our pursuit of financial stability. But who has asked whether the equity markets are the right place for these risks? Moreover, financial stability is not an absolute. Who has asked what is the right balance between the creativity as well as the destructiveness that can ensue from some instability. The more general point I want to make is that our pursuit of financial stability must be placed in the wider context of supporting sensible risk-taking and must not be independent of that wider context. I don't believe that this is how the authorities think of financial stability today. Indeed, the fashionable separation of the financial powers between the regulator, the FSA, the central bank, the Bank of England, and the finance ministry makes it even harder for the regulator to think in these terms. No one in the UK government really owns the objective of making sure that our financial system supports risk-taking. And yet, that is one of the most important catalysts of economic growth. Six years on from the separation of the Bank of England and the FSA, it's time for an assessment of how these powers work together, not just for the sake of financial stability, but also for the sake of economic growth. So today I want to talk about risk-taking, and in the process, develop five principles of risk-taking and risk-transfer 
that should influence the way we achieve a growth-supporting financial stability. Credit risk transfers have become a hot topic of discussion. The discussion is defined in terms of institutions and instruments. After all, that is what we observe, it's what we see. One instrument, one institution, sells its credit risk to another, usually using some form of credit derivative. Now, defined in this way, the discussion is often paralyzed by the shortage of data on exactly which instruments are held by who. However, when thinking about systemic issues, institutions and instruments are often a distraction. What matters is behavior. If you focus on instruments and institutions, developments will always appear to be unknown in detail, but probably beneficial. Invariably, risks are being shifted from where they are known and taxed to where they're unknown and untaxed, so we don't have a lot of detail about them. And it's very easy to argue that the more instruments, the better. But it's a distraction for another reason, too. From a systemic point of view, you cannot reduce risks by spreading them across institutions or instruments unless this is associated with some kind of different behavior by these institutions. The only way to, diver to diversify risks is to diversify behavior. I was once asked by a bank to study what would happen, quite a progressive bank with a very good credit derivatives part, and it said, what would happen if we got rid of all of our credit officers? They didn't say this too loudly. But what would happen if we got rid of all of our credit officers and used the information we were getting from the credit markets to determine whether we extend our lending to a client or not? And I did this uh, report, and my conclusion was they would end up with no clients at all. Because when things are rough and the cost of credit for weaker companies soars, the bank would cut its lending sharply. And when things recovered, the aggrieved clients would not want to deal with that bank ever again. You cut my lending just when I needed it. I always remember when working for JP Morgan, for example, the difficulty they had took them almost 10 years to re-establish themselves in the Scandinavian markets at the end of the 1990s, having pulled out of the region during the property and banking crises uh, in the early 1990s, late 1980s. While bankers forgive all those who are prepared to pay a premium, corporate treasurers bear grudges. Now let's explore this further by considering two alternatives. Imagine that a bank first lends to a company on the basis of the views of its credit officer. Gleaned from the bank's long-term relationship with the company, the bank's understanding of the business, and market prices. Or, imagine this bank securitizes this lending and sells it to 10 international banks. Is the risk now spread or concentrated? Our instinct is that it's been spread. Many institutions hold a smaller slice of the risk. However, these 10 banks don't have the incentive of the first bank, with its long-term commitment, the full value of the loan, to invest in 10 credit offices. So they use the equity market's latest assessment of risk as their assessment of risk. 
when the equity price falls, they hedge their exposure by selling the stock. Now, because all ten are doing the same thing at the same time, the stock price collapses dramatically with contagious consequences for that company's ability to tap liquidity and for like companies too. Risks have been concentrated into the equity markets. Now, is that the best place for volatility? Not if what we want is individuals to build their own nest eggs by investing in the public equity markets and rely less on the state. It's also important to remember that individual investors are liquidity constrained. I'm always amazed at how often people forget this. It's an observation that solves many puzzles. David Miles recently did a report on the housing market and he scratched his head and said, why is it that people always get seduced by these discounted mortgages? I don't understand it. It's because people are liquidity constrained. They need the cash. You offer them a discount today, even if they're going to pay more tomorrow, they'll go for the discount. It explains, too, why investors always have too much equity in their portfolios because they're trying to borrow. It's the only way they can borrow from the future is by borrowing from your pension fund. And so it's why it would not be desirable to have volatility parked into the public equity markets, which are available to all where individuals are overinvested. Instead, these volatilities should be parked in instruments accessible to institutions and professional investors. The retail investor can maybe get access to those via these intermediaries. The way to spread risks is to allow different institutions with different investment objectives and risk profiles to treat risks differently. We've talked about some of this before. It's worth repeating because it's the precise opposite of the current approach to financial stability which is to encourage different institutions with different investment objectives and risk prof profiles to price and hedge risks in the same way in the same markets. There is the absurd mantra, I'm sure you've heard it, of common standards. It only makes sense if you view financial regulation as a legal objective with the concern of equality of treatment of all institutions rather than, say, an economic or financial objective. We'll take a fresh look at how we could do things differently in a moment. Let's now turn to information. I've mentioned here before that it's very important to recognize that banking is merely part of the information industry. And to think in those terms when thinking about financial policy. One of the reasons why there's a common behavior in the financial markets is that there's common information. In our previous example of 10 international banks using the same market price, they were using the same information. Which, of course, is really quite odd when you think about it. How on earth do they expect, using the same information, to outperform each other? It reminds me of one of my pet rules for newly employed graduate economists, who are always, as they come out of university, chomping up a bit to do a statistical regression on a computer using some real data, they say, rather than the truncated piece of data the lecturer has been using for the past 10 years. I tell them, don't even begin unless you have a different data set or a different methodology or a different theory 
than everybody else. How else could you find anything that has not been found before? The credit officer at a bank has different information than the market. As a result of a relationship with that client, as a result perhaps of a corporate memory of a long-term relationship with that client. But through bank regulation, relationship banking is more heavily taxed than investing in credit securities. And that's why it's dying out. In effect, this is a tax on information gathering when this information could be used to reduce systemic risks. And therefore, in fact, there's a better candidate for a subsidy than a tax. Another example of common information, behavior, and place leading to a concentration of risks is the experience of private contingent credit lines. In the late 1990s, Argentina and others, in fact, I think it was literally that, perhaps mid-1990s, Argentina and others wanted to expand the resources they could draw on in a crisis. And so they approached, they were the darling of the IMF at the time, of course, and they approached with credibility a few international banks who offered them contingent credit lines in case of a crisis. At the time, this was hailed as a wonderfully ingenious and market-friendly way of reducing public risks and spreading it to the international private sector. Now, the banks who entered into these agreements were those who already had some Argentine exposure, so they knew the risks well. However, the problem was that as Argentine risks rose through the late 1990s, early 2000, and the possibility that Argentina would draw on its contingent credit line went up, the banks got nervous. They began wanting to hedge their potential risk and the way they could do that was by reducing their overall exposure to Argentina, reducing the amount of private lending they were doing uh, to Argentina. But of course, as they began reducing their private lending, this only compounded economic problems in Argentina, making it more likely that the government would end up in a crisis. This was a, not a spreading of risks, it ended up being a concentration of risks. Looking back, it would have been an ingenious and market-friendly thing if Argentina had done three additional things. Firstly, gone to a set of banks who didn't have any significant existing exposure in Argentina. So when they were wanting to reduce their risk, they wouldn't hold the exposure with the government and reduce the private lending. Secondly, they needed to reach an agreement that the risk was to be hedged outside Argentine markets. And thirdly, they have to pay extra for the separation of risk and hedge. There's no free lunch. The separation of risk assessments, hedging and position, would have created sufficient diversity to spread risk. But if instead you buy a risk and then price it and hedge it and trade it in the same market at the same time, it's not a behavior that's going to spread risks, but instead it'll concentrate it. Different behavior based on different information will help to spread and diversify risks. Another important form of diversification is across time. If the 10 international banks we spoke of earlier, who own one-tenth each of the credit exposure, initially owned by the first domestic bank, priced and hedged the exposure in the same market 
but used different windows of time. Some hedging over the short term, some hedging over the long term. This would have created some important diversity. Moreover, different investors reasonably have different time horizons. If a manager managing a portfolio of UK gilts for a young pension fund, compare that to a bank manager managing a gilt portfolio against some short-term liabilities, they both should respond differently to a one-day fall in gilt prices. Our discussion so far leads to five principles we need to consider when designing our financial system and its regulation. First, institutions and instruments don't matter as much as we think they do. Behavior matters. Secondly, risks are compounded when they are priced, hedged, and traded in the same place. Thirdly, one of the most powerful forms of diversification of risks is across time. Fourthly, individuals are liquidity constrained. Given the choice, they would invest in riskier instruments than suited to them in order to borrow from their future income. Fifth and finally, risks are best managed by those who best understand them. There should be incentives, not penalties, for market participants to get better understanding of their risks through long-term relationships with their clients. Let's start from the bottom and work up in terms of how we might respond to these principles. In order to encourage better and more innovative understanding of risks, and to lighten the tax on good relationship banking, banks should be charged in their capitalistic pursuit requirements, not just for the amount of risk on their books, but on their past ability to predict their risks. It is conceivable that under this arrangement that a small bank, which is an expert in risky lending and predicts its risks well, could have a lower capital charge than a big bank specializing in safe lending that was just very bad at predicting its risks. This would appear to be the right incentives, encouraging the right kind of behavior. It would actually be inconceivable using the current approach to capital charges and bank regulation. Given that individual investors are liquidity constrained, and this will appear contentious, I'm sure, we should not worry that professional investors can invest in hedge funds and retail investors cannot. And we should not change that though this is being actively considered today by the FSA. Marking to market, or doing so nearly every week or every month, reduces the possibility of a major source of risk diversification, time. Regulators have woken up to this of late, better late than ever, but there's more that can be done here in allowing genuinely long-term investors to value assets over the long term. Using the same market to price, hedge, and trade risk leads market participants to chase their tail, especially in general market rises or falls. Alternative risk assessments that take away the current price should be explored. For example, different prices can be used to hedge market risks versus specific idiosyncratic risks which may reduce the requirement to sell when the general market declines and buy when it rises. Finally, 
Encouraging diverse behavior needs to be an important objective, a declared objective of financial regulation. It can be achieved by sanctioning different behavior for different institutions, managing different types of risk, or managing similar risks but in different ways, with different objectives, or by sanctioning different markets to offset risks. Let me conclude by saying that it's important to remember, let us not lose sight of the fact that financial stability is a means to an end, not the end in itself. We need to ward against the pursuit of financial stability that weighs too heavily on growth. We need, therefore, to have a theory, a concept of risk-taking and how financial stability fits into that. Not having so has meant that the spreading of risk today often can lead to its concentration. And this is not about institutions and instruments. That's a distraction. It's about behavior. We can spread risks when we do so across different behavior and different time. Thank you very much indeed. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.